Good evening, everyone. Welcome back to Ground Waves. I'm Rabbi Adina Lewittis, and I am so honored and so delighted to be together with all of you tonight. 
Joy Harjo was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is a member of the Muscogee Creek Nation. She is the incumbent United States Poet Laureate, the first Native American to hold that honor. She has said, I feel strongly that I have a responsibility to all the sources that I am, to all past and future ancestors, to my home country, to all places that I touch down on and that are myself to all voices, all women, all of my tribe, all people, all earth, and beyond that, to all beginnings and endings. In the opening of her piece called Conflict Resolution for Holy Beings, she wrote this. Recognize whose lands these are on which we stand. Ask the deer, turtle, and the crane. Make sure the spirits of these lands are respected and treated with goodwill. The land is a being who remembers everything. You will have to answer to your children and their children and theirs. The red shimmer of remembering will compel you up the night to walk the perimeter of truth for understanding. As I brushed my hair over the hotel sink to get ready, I heard, by listening, we will understand who we are in this holy realm of words. Do not parade pleased with yourself. You must speak in the language of justice. We are gathered tonight here for Grand Waves, rooted in many different locations throughout the United States and Canada. But I will attempt to speak with humility this land acknowledgement from where I am sitting in Closter, New Jersey, in Bergen County. I am here on the ancestral and unceded land of the Munsee Lenape people. Known as peaceful people, the Lenape hold a respected position within the community of Algonquin-speaking nations and were esteemed as the Grandfather Tribe. May this land acknowledgement be a way of expressing our gratitude and appreciation to those on whose territory we reside, and may it serve as a starting place for repairing our relationship with the Indigenous people who have stewarded this land for generations and those who continue to reside here. Land acknowledgements are heard across Canada at political gatherings, galas, in school classrooms, and even at hockey games, which is how we know it's become a real phenomenon. And it's slowly becoming one in the United States, too. Northwestern University's Native American and Indigenous Initiatives explains that a land acknowledgement is a formal statement that recognizes and respects Indigenous peoples as traditional stewards of this land and the enduring relationship that exists between Indigenous peoples and their traditional territories. To recognize the land is an expression of gratitude and appreciation to those whose territory you reside on, and a way of honoring the Indigenous people who have been living and working on the land from time immemorial. It is important to understand the long-standing history that has brought you to reside on the land, and to seek to understand your place within that history. Land acknowledgements, it further explains, don't exist in the past tense or in a historically defined context. Rather, land acknowledgements express the understanding of the continued brokenness of our relationships with those whose land we reside in. And they help us to engage in its healing as an ongoing process. Our task is to build awareness and mindfulness and to promote wider participation in that process. It is also an important for us to note that the very ritual of acknowledging the land is an indigenous tradition. 
Judaism teaches the sacredness of words, but it also warns of the limitations of words. As Canadian Jewish author Stephen March has penned, speech is easy. Speech is free, unlike, say, paying for the education of First Nations schoolchildren, who still receive 30% less funding than children in non-Indigenous Canada. Without the work of restoring justice, without the work of repairing inequity, without the work of rebuilding trust, our words risk remaining not just meaningless and unintelligible, but they risk becoming a dangerous distraction and escape from the real work that needs our attention. It took more than 50 years of revisions before the Pledge of Allegiance that opens every school day in the United States took its current polished legalistic form, a form that many feel dangerously glosses over the dark and violent history upon which it was scripted. Stephen March once suggested that every Canadian needs to write their own land acknowledgement. But maybe what we need more than a script, collective or personal, are the facts of our real and substantive engagement with accountability and with possibility. And may tonight be the beginning for us at Sha'ar. to give thanks to the source of life. It is good to sing praises to the one and holy name, to proclaim your love every morning and the faithfulness every night. Julie Garrow, who is an enrolled member of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe, founded the Cheyenne River Youth Project in 1988 and has served as its executive director ever since growing it into a comprehensive youth and family services organization. Julie is a dedicated youth advocate, hoping that the Cheyenne River Youth Project will become a model for other communities to follow as they develop effective, sustainable, and culturally relevant youth programming. In addition to serving as a suicide crisis referral hotline counselor from 94 to 2000, Julie also testified before the United States Senate Indian Affairs Committee hearing on youth suicide prevention in 2005. Her name appears on the honor wall at the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, DC. 
She has held a seat on the Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Advisory Council from 2007 to the present. And in 2014, she became a founding member of the Native American Food Systems Alliance. She has established the Farm to Table Kia Cafe and Coffee Shop, the Kia Gift Shop, and the seasonal Leading Lady Farmers Market at the Cheyenne River Youth Project campus. And she continues to spearhead sustainable agricultural initiatives for children, teens, and the Cheyenne River community. In the last five years, Julie and her staff have also launched the innovative, groundbreaking Waniatu-Awapi Lakota Arts Institute, the Waniatu-Awapi Art Park, and the Red Can Graffiti Jam, which was the recipient of Americans for the Arts 2017 Robert E. Gard Award at the Cheyenne River Youth Project campus. I want to acknowledge that Julia comes to us by way of a long and warm relationship with Manette and Aaron Berlinger and their family. And we thank you, Manette and Aaron, for helping to make possible tonight's opportunity for us to be with Julia. Julia, what you might not know is of another fascinating connection between your community and ours, which is that one of our beloved Sha'ar families, the Prager family, headed by Dr. Ken Prager and his wife, Jeannie, lived on your reservation early in his medical career, several decades ago, and two of their four children, also part of the Shire family, were born there. So when I discovered this, I was just even more confirmed about how important it is that we meet and that we have this chance to bring our communities together. Welcome, Julie, and we are just thrilled to have you with us. And I want to extend a welcome to your team, to your public relations director, Heather Steinberger, and to the others who I hope are with us from your community tonight. Thank you very much for that warm welcome. That's in a, that just says how small the world is, isn't it? It's amazing. That happens actually after, I suppose, 32 years of working with the Shine River Youth Project. It happens quite a bit. I had a the old the high school librarian here was trying to place an order in some place in in Connecticut, and the person waiting for him, the customer service, was actually one of our volunteers. So it happens <laughs> quite a bit. We've uh, I think we've touched a lot of lives. So that's uh, that's really great to hear that connection. Well, the more we can come together and build bonds with each other, it's a beautiful thing. So tell us a little bit about where you live and about your community on the Cheyenne River Reservation. Oh, yeah. Um, so I am a uh, Shine River Lakota. I am Minikoju Lakota. On the Shine River Reservation, we have four bands, and I belong to the Minikoju Band of the Lakota. Uh, I was born and raised here. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting because I think for Lakota people, one of the things that's most important to us is that we always remain connected to home. But when we think about the reservation and coming home, so it's about 3 million square acres. We have about uh, 15,000 people who live here, uh, native and non-native. Um, I think about 3,000 non-native people live here as well. We have about 17 outlying communities that are just sprinkled throughout the reservation. Eagle Butte, where I live, is one of the largest. And uh, it's, it's very interesting because we always find our way home. So it's you know where the reservation at one point in our history was where they put us to contain us, to keep us together. Um, this is really in my mind and how I feel is that it's a stronghold now. It's where I always want to be, where I always have to find my way home to. I had a foot injury, which left me in Rapid City, South Dakota, which is about three hours to the west of us. 
And after about four weeks, I think I was going a little bit crazy because I just needed to come home. And the change in that, when I come home and I'm surrounded by people that I know and the work that I love just really makes a difference. So growing up on Cheyenne River is, when I think about it, you know, people have said to me, and it, it's not very fair, but, um, you know, you can go anywhere. You could be anywhere. Why would you stay there? As though staying there is a bad place. So, you know, I think when we think about reservations, there's the idea that it's a very sad, dark place, you know, and there's only poverty and there's only all these like social challenges that we have, but yet, you know, there's so many beautiful things here. And I would, you know, Heather, our PR manager uh, is uh, in our culture, she's my Hunka sister. So we went through ceremony and we adopted each other. And, uh, but we did that because we understand what it is to be connected to Cheyenne River. It's a place that we always call home. It's a place we're always drawn to. I don't imagine myself anywhere else, really. I don't know, uh, I don't know how other people feel about that, but you know, we do have our challenges. We're, we're a small community, uh, but there's a thriving effort to make sure that our language remains strong. Um, we have our ceremonies, we have our, our cultural practices, we have our music and dancing, it's thriving. And I've heard people talk about, you know, our communities um, thinking only, I think in, in their, their Western idea of what uh, like music and arts are, you know, kind of referring to areas like ours as a desert. And that's, that's kind of a hurtful thing to say because we know that we have our, our, our dances and our music and our praying, we have our, our ceremonies and those are really beautiful things. And, and not to be taken lightly because it took so much to regain that because they worked so hard to take it away. So the fight was really real to make sure that we, we had the access and we had the ability to pray and go into ceremony that, you know, what I love is that we're growing children now that are, they didn't live in that era where it was illegal to speak your language or it was illegal to pray. You know, I think we've had some in the recently, you know, we've had some situations. I don't know if many of you have heard about the Standing Rock, um, what happened there to stop the, the pipeline. And that was a really youth led um, protest, I guess, but it was really just, it was the most beautiful thing. I get to go up every now and then on weekends, but there are people who live there and, and the amount of connectedness that we felt from just being there was, was really incredible. But that's the kind of young people that we are, we are growing now. You know, they are proud to be Lakota. They want to be Lakota. They grow their hair long. They dance, they sing, they play the drum. That, it's a really beautiful era that we've entered into, but not, definitely still not without its challenges. And, you know, I think it's interesting because COVID has really opened uh, where it should be about taking care of each other and stopping it. You know, there, it's become such a political thing and there's so much hatred and meanness. And it, it's just a really kind of interesting thing what, what, what's happened here. And it's really shown its, its kind of unkind face here on Cheyenne River. Um, there's been a very large divide uh, when I can't really imagine, I don't understand why, because we're all part of the same community. They live within our community. You know, we have lost, I understand, in the month of November, uh, more than 15 people to COVID. Mm -hmm. 
um, several of whom are our language speakers. They're our language teachers. And that's an incredible loss. That's a, it's, it's just very difficult to even imagine. Um, I always get a little weird when I, when I talk about that because it's still really unbelievable to me. But we have a lot of strong people here working and, and a young population that I just have the absolute faith in, in where our communities will go. And I feel so good um, when I think about them and to, to know that I've been able to be a part of that, uh, where they have trusted me and trusted me with caring for their children, being a part of it and, and being able to grow this facility. Uh, it's, it's pretty amazing what's happening here on Cheyenne River, but it's home. It's, it's, it's very difficult to not think about it of anything else and for me to yes of course I understand I wouldn't be in this work if I didn't understand that we had our challenges but I also understand there's an incredible beauty incredible people working so hard and you know the difference I think is that when we do the work when we're engaged in this kind of work we're not just engaging in clients we're engaging in our friends and our family and that really changes everything. So I feel like, you know, when we are talking about the work that we're doing here on Cheyenne River for our people who have a lot of need, you know, I hear my staff always talking about um, helping the relatives because everybody is our relative. We are all relatives, we're all connected. So I really love feeling that. And I think that's how our community is. And I think that that's the part is hard, hardest part and saddest part about with, with COVID driving the wedge in between so many people, it, it's very difficult to watch because, you know, I think we all just see each other as relatives and community members and friends. And so we've seen some changes go, you know, come, come as a result of COVID, but I think we'll find our way back. I think once, once this passes, um, sometimes you have to, to take some steps backward before we can really move forward. So. I, uh, I'm really hopeful about that. I feel really good about that. But I think we have, it's like a small town USA, you know? I know that there are people who would, who go drive hours out of their way so they don't have to drive through a reservation as though it's very, something different. But, you know, I have so many friends who just want to come home to the reservation, Heather being one of them, you know, we miss home. So it's, uh, I think it's a thriving place, a, a place full of loving people, uh, yes, we have our challenges, but it's home. And I don't know where else I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be here. And uh, I love that, you know, when I talk to the kids, uh, when, we, when we spend time with them, we talk about, you know, this is home. Don't think that the whole world isn't yours though. You can go see the world. You can travel the world. You can go do whatever you want to do. But if you want to come home, come back and be part of the solution, be part of building and making your community stronger. And I really just, uh, I love that feeling because I think most kids, we always find our way home. I sure did. Thank you for, sh for sharing that, Julie. And uh, in such warm terms, the concept of home is, is so powerful and family is such a powerful metaphor for the way that we describe the relationships to the people whose lives ours intersect with so profoundly. When we first uh, met a couple of weeks ago, um, part of your sharing with me uh, a little bit of the Lakota values that animate your community led you to telling me the story of your grandmother. And it was, 
both something that felt deeply familiar in terms of the emphasis on on family and on values within the Jewish tradition, but um, it also struck me that speaking about values by definition requires speaking about family and about love. Yeah, you know, um... I, I think the story, I, I think what I talked about was my, uh, my great grandmother who was at, um, she was a survivor of the Wounded Knee Massacre. We talked a little bit about that. We talked about, um, and, and I think what, you know, when we're talking about the youth center and working with kids, I know a lot of people were, you know, there's a, you know, don't do that, no's, you shouldn't do these sorts of things. But I think what we've really tried to instill in our kids and instill in our, our employees, our staff, when we're thinking about working with kids, we always want to go back to uh, our Lakota values. And um, I'm going to read them because I might overlook one. But um, so we have seven that we really want to live our lives by. And of course, it's in this world, in this day and age is very difficult. But I think the the beautiful part is that we're always reminding each other of, of, of these values through what we're doing, what we're saying, how we're acting, the work that we're doing. So praying is a very big part of what of, of, of the Lakota tradition, respecting each other, caring for each other, being compassionate, uh, telling the truth. And I think that the conversations now across the country are we're working very hard to change the narrative because I think we've just we're just so ready for the change in that narrative about who Native and Indigenous people are, um, but yet you know make sure that you're generous. And I think that like when I think about like the Shine River Youth Project and I think about all the work that we do, I feel like those values are all embedded like they're part of our organizational DNA, like taking care, being wise, being smart. So we also have humility and wisdom. And I understand that growing up in this professional world and having an amazing PR person, um, you know, I understand I have to have a bio for people to share about who I am, you know, but I, I found myself as you were reading it, I was like, yeah, you know, I want to, I kind of wanted you to stop because I think <laughs> that that's a part of it too. You know, we don't do this work for, for the grandeur of it. It's very, very hard work. Um, so I think, and then just being wise about the decisions that we make. So trying to make sure that our kids understand those values, that we're living those values, that the organization represents those values. And again, it is hard, it's very difficult, but, but I don't think that we can let it fade away or slip away. I think we have to, it's a daily reminder, it's a daily ritual. You know, there's nothing greater than me than to smell sage burning and my staff or my deputy director or someone will all of a sudden come walking through with the sage bowl. And then we just kind of bless ourselves and then we move on. And it's really a powerful moment, even if it's brief, because it, what it does is it just brings us back to who we are as Lakota people, brings us back and reminds us of, of our power, of what we can do, what we have done. And uh, it kind of just encourages us too, to, to continue to go. But, you know, my, my grandmother, I think that you'll often hear uh, when you're in Indian country, when you're speaking with indigenous peoples, we often talk about our ancestors. It's, it's who we live, you know, they fought so hard for us to be here and they survived the, you know, I can, what I need to do is survive for them. 
I need to be here for them. So, you know, my great grandmother was a survivor of the wounded massacre. Uh, all her family, her husband and her children were all killed. The baby that she carried on her back was shot and killed, but she survived and she made it. And she found her way back to a community called Cherry Creek. And that's where she married this kind of redheaded Frenchman explorer guy. And so in my family, you will see a mix of kind of light skinned, light eyes, light hair to the very dark, to the middle, like I am. It, we're just kind of a nice blend of all the colors. But yeah, it was really like some days I honestly do think like, stop complaining, Julie. You know, look at what your grandma did. Look at what she did for you. You are here because she survived. So I think that those things are really real for us. We really um, think about our ancestors and all they went through. So that that's, we're always thinking about that, making sure that we honor them in everything that we do. So that's one of the most important things that I find or so beautiful about my community is that we really are powered by our ancestors because look what they did so that we could be here. So, you know, when we think about that, um, you know, just making sure that we continue working to do the, to make sure that our communities continue to thrive. And I really, really um, loved how you acknowledged the people of your, the, uh, the inhabitant, inhabitants of, your, of the land there because that wasn't always the case. That's something that's really, I don't know how long it's been, but I, you know, I've seen it happen more and more at like national conferences and that kind of thing. And the feeling I get when I just see them stop for a moment and they say, we want to acknowledge, you know, the people who lived here before, it's a really beautiful thing for me. I just think, wow, like we're making progress. We're doing like, it's changing. That narrative is changing. And they're beginning to acknowledge who we are, that we were here, and that we actually have a shared history. You know, one that is that's really beautiful. You know, we have uh, we have you know resilience and 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 all that sort of thing. But it's also a very dark history too, where you know the boarding schools and just the forced assimilation and it's the policies to exterminate us. You know, so we have a very much a shared history. I think that our job is now my job, which it really has been a part of my job since the beginning, is to continue to work to change the narrative of how indigenous people are seen. And I think, sorry, go ahead. Can we talk for a few minutes about one of uh, one of the main narratives that I think um, you know people are realizing more and more really needs to be to be shifted, and that is the narrative around the holiday of Thanksgiving that's coming in just a few days from now, a time that we know is fraught with such a dark and, and painful uh, history. And yet the way the holiday is observed by so many Americans belies the reality of that past. Can you speak a little bit, Julie, to this time on the American cultural calendar and how we can move into this week with greater integrity and mindfulness as we seek ways to heal our fractured nation and the bonds between us? Absolutely. I mean, I think that what people have to understand about Thanksgiving and the whole idea of the pilgrims and sharing this beautiful meal is absolutely not true. I mean, I think there might be some little bits of pieces of, of truth, you know, maybe the, the, the native people brought some venison for a meal, but it really was, it was made into this really magical thing, almost like we were asking to be colonized, please save us, you know, and there was this beautiful thing. It just wasn't like that. It was the beginning of the end for, for 
indigenous people. And I think as we move forward as the holiday, I don't celebrate the holiday. In fact, at Cheyenne River Youth Project, we really try really hard to, to take the holidays that other people think of and, and decolonize them, if, if, we, if, if we could say it that way. So we do a thanks for kids dinner because obviously that's a holiday, people are gone. Uh, so we do something called thanks for kids. We don't have that kind of you know, idea and um, the pilgrims are definitely not of it. We do the same thing with Christmas. We call it the, the month of giving gifts. So, you know, we really work hard to kind of change that narrative about these holidays that have really been so destructive for Native people. And so as I think that as, you know, a lot of people ask my friends kind of jokingly, I said, do you want me to call you on Thanksgiving and then just kind of remind everybody at the dinner table? They're like, no, we know, Julie. So um, they don't need me to do that. But I really do feel like um, it's a day that I think that if you can turn it into something where you acknowledge history and the hurt of that, and of course we don't want you know you to know, become sad and all that sort of thing but i think it's important to just remember the origin of that and the untruths and um change it just change it just make a decision that you're not going to support that story anymore because it's a very hurtful i mean for the original people when you think about them and how that story has grown of uh, the wampanoags um how that has grown over the years. And it's just not true. Imagine what it must be for, for them who are a part of that. And then just indigenous people across Turtle Island. You know, it's just not a truth. And we have to start changing the narrative. We're ready for that. And, you know, we play an important role in, the, in, this, in this country. And I think we need to create allies. We need to create people. And I mean, I really think we've been doing that since the very beginning because we've had people who have come to you know our community and they're like well we want to get a Lakota name and you know we want to go into sweat and all that type of thing we've experienced all that so with us at CRYP we've really worked to help educate people we want to send them home as ambassadors for our community and help them and I think that's why I'm here tonight is because we have an ambassador out there who really felt strongly about this story. And so we really work to decolonize these holiday, uh, holidays. I, I don't think they're gonna go away. They'll continue to be there. But I think how we begin to see them and just take a moment to remember, I think that's very important. Julie, you said something um, just a moment ago that I think is worth um, uh, unpacking just a little bit more. Um, and it's also something that we spoke about uh, a couple of weeks ago, this idea of, um, of what it means to be an ally. Um, you spoke about the idea of sovereignty in our, in our earlier conversation. Sovereignty um, in a way that goes deeper than physical independence. T tell us a little bit more about what you mean by that term and how it plays into the work you do on behalf of your community and what do allies look like to you? What are the ideal relationships that communities like ours should be building together with you? Um, people will have a very different definition of what sovereignty is. It will mean differently because I think people think about sovereign nations, they think about government to government relationships and that kind of thing. Um, I think for indigenous people, um, sovereignty means so much more. It means that we have this inherent right to be sovereign, to be able to pray be able to sing, to be able to dance the way we need to. I think that it's also embraces something that we call which means that we are all related. 
and we are all related. We are related to the, to the sun, the stars, the moon, the ground, the grasses, everything. And I think that's when we talk about sovereignty, we're talking about that interconnectedness. So it goes much deeper, I feel. And I, and I, and I think one of the things is that as you begin to learn more about indigenous people, I think the thing is talking to people, finding other people who, you know, seek a variety of voices um, because everybody will have maybe just a little slightly different understanding. So, but, you know, for me, uh, when I think about my sovereignty, I think about my, my right to pray the way I want to pray, to sing and dance and practice our ceremonies and all of that. I, uh, I think it just goes much deeper when we think about sovereignty in terms of indigenous people. And again, we are all related. Everybody on this call, we are all related. We all have a relationship to each other in some way. And I think that's, I think the, the kind of the foundation of what I mean, and a lot of people will see as sovereignty. Julie, in the, in the last few minutes that we have together, is there any message to the Jewish community that we can take with us from you? Uh, you know, I think that I, I love the fact that you've invited us here. I love the fact that you are interested in finding out our perspective. I love that you are asking, how can we be a part of supporting you and changing the narrative? And this is just one way. This is the start of one. You know, I think that there are things that you can do, you know, in your professional lives. You can, you know, you can uh, help make us more visible because I think um, the history of this country has worked to make us invisible as though we're just a story and we've gone by. Um, I think you become advocates for native history. If you're an instructor or a teacher, or if you're any, any position where you can talk about the truth and correcting that in our school systems, because to this day, it's still not being taught. I think seeking the voices of other people, you know, um, I think that saying no to mascots <laughs> is another one, you know, just say, no, that's not, you, you know, it's degrading, it's dehumanizing. Um, I think just helping us, I think those are ways to become allies and just including us and remembering that we're still here. We haven't gone away. We have like one of the fastest growing youth populations in the country. We have native youth who are just, you know, they are not going to, to, to take what the old narrative was. They are young and they are powerful and they are amazing. And Standing Rock was one of those things. It was a youth led movement and I really love that. So I think learning more about Indian country uh, is an important piece. Julie, I am so grateful to you for the time that you've taken tonight to be with us. I really hope that this is the beginning, as you say, of what can be a deepening of the ties between us. And I hope that when the world opens up, we can come and spend some time with your community, learn more about you. And with our shared appreciation for ritual and music, perhaps you know there'll be a way for us to formalize the kind of narrative shifting around this time of year so that we can broaden and deepen the message of honesty and integrity and mindfulness um, that this time of year especially needs. And I know that many of us will be bringing your spirit and your wisdom into our observances this week. And may it truly lead to, uh, to a, a world of love between us and between all peoples and us on the planet. 
Um, I hope deeply that your community stays safe and healthy during this time. And we look forward to being in touch together again soon. Thank you so much for the invitation and the opportunity to share. And uh, Julie, you should know also that the Prager family that I referred to earlier, they are actually on this call right now. And oh, awesome. uh, so great. Is, uh, I see Jeannie some Prager. Jeannie Prager is oh. on this call. Okay. All right. Yeah. I, um, mm. I think they're, they sent me messages. I'm not sure how to grab I them. I think they're on there too. As we turn to, uh, to Dan again, uh, there'll be a chance if you wish to interact. And again, we thank the Berlingers and, uh, and we wish you well. Thank, thank you, you so much, everybody. Take care.
Thank you, Dan. So beautiful. You know, as Jewish people, who's as Jewish people, as as people whose cultural home is among the Jewish people, we have a long and complex relationship to land. We're part of a tradition that is deeply connected to place and to one place in particular, the land of Israel. Even though for thousands of years of exile and beyond, we have lived in other countries throughout the world, transforming our physical devotion to the land into portable and powerful words of prayer and of study, developing the Jewish principle of discovering and cultivating holiness in every corner of the globe and in every expression of human will. For millennia, we have striven to balance our love for a place with our commitment to all places. And for 72 years, since the establishment of the modern state of Israel in 1948, we've struggled to balance our sense of home with that of the native Arab populations who had been living there alongside us throughout the millennia, as well as those whose geographical journeys have intersected with our own a struggle with roots way back in the Torah. To advance the cause of peace, maybe what we need here in North America is a reawakening to the reverence for land and home that we as Jews feel each time we step onto the tarmac at Ben Gurion Airport, each time we walk the streets of Yerushalayim, each time we hike the verdant trails of the Galilee or saunter along the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. Just as perhaps what we need in Israel is a reawakening to the call of radically inclusive justice and equity that's rising here in the United States, especially during these months of the pandemic and is further evidenced by the results of the recent election. You know, Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav noted that whenever the land of Israel is mentioned in the Torah, it's always mentioned in the present tense. Ha'aretz asher ani noten lechem, this land that I am giving you. The reason, he explained, is that when a Jew is in Israel, they should feel as if the land was just given in that moment. That every day is a new day and every day should bring a sense of freshness and of new opportunities and new chances to fulfill the land's mandate to be a land of peace and of love. Imagine if we were able to muster the innocence and the optimism of Rabbi Nachman's teaching and approach each day with the belief that it is a new chance to write a new story, to plant new seeds, and to harvest new crops. Imagine that with these daily new beginnings, these daily new opportunities, that we too could find our way home to places of hope and of possibility. There are more and more such Jewish initiatives being developed with a focus on healing our relationship with indigenous peoples. And I wanna share two of them with you. Rabbi Dev Noyli is a leader in the San Francisco-based organization, Jews on Ohlone Land, which explores how Jews can live in right relationship to that land, to its ancestors and the indigenous people and communities who live there now. In a poignant teaching, Rabbi Norley acknowledges the tension between our heritage, which transformed our relationship to holy land into one of prayer and our basic human need to create home wherever it is that we physically exist. They write, but while my spirit is fed by the cycles of sacred time 
and by the transgenerational community that lives in the portable homeland of holy text, my body still lives in a place, in a specific location on the earth. And as a human being, I need to be connected physically and spiritually to the place where I am. For me, Rabbi Noyli wrote, the thriving of diaspora depends on our connection to both the traveling homeland of text, community, and holy time, and on our connection to the physical homeland of the place where we live, right here and right now. Part of what they are doing, part of what they're growing, is the new weaving together of the traveling Jewish homeland and their home on ancestral Oholoni land. They are weaving together emet and chesed, truth and loving kindness. The emet of white people's genocide of indigenous people here and our accountability for its legacy. And with the chesed of the Oholoni invitation to create healing for all the people that exist on this land. And as they write, as we follow indigenous leadership and as we learn about the sacred sites and stories of this land, we're also starting to see new possibilities emerge for our healing and for our place-specific diaspora Jewish identity. What's really fascinating is that in addition to advocating for local indigenous history to be included in Jewish educational programs, in addition to encouraging Jewish participation in indigenous-led community events, and in addition to coordinating a, a national network of Jews working on indigenous solidarity, a core feature of the work of this organization, Jews on Noholoni land, is to organize, educate, and activate Jewish participation in the Shaumi land tax across the East Bay. The Shaumi land tax is a voluntary annual contribution that non-Indigenous people living on traditional Oholoni territory make to support the critical work of the Sogarete Land Trust. In another example, the Mitsui Collective is a Jewish initiative that seeks to build resilient community around nature and wellness, embodied Jewish practice, and racial equity. In their Jewishly framed land acknowledgement, they strive to simultaneously hold the needs of ourselves as individuals, the needs of our individual communities, and the needs of all other communities who make up the larger ecosystems in which we live. And as a closing ritual to their land acknowledgement, they turn to the Shema, what they refer to as a beautiful haiku that holds both the particular and the universal in Jewish tradition in one embrace. The ritual invites all who are present to join together from the different places that now virtual gatherings joins us from and to sing together and to call in and to honor the presence of all those whose lives intersect with our lives, all those who have been and continue to be in relationship to these lands and these places. And so we're going to close this part of our program with this same ritual. I invite you to find a centered position, whether sitting or standing, feet to the floor, and to take a deep breath, and then to recite with me these sacred words. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. And we pause to make space for the voices of all those, all those whom we have evoked in this ritual. Shema Yisrael, listen, 
you God wrestlers, pay attention. We are being called into divine presence. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai is our God. We call on Hashem as the God of our ancestors, particular in the relationship to us as the Jewish people. Adonai Echad. Adonai is one, a unified presence, the divinity of sacred interconnectedness between all peoples and all living beings on this world and all others.
Friends, next week on Ground Waves, we're thrilled to be welcoming author Anita Diamond of Red Tent fame and the new Jewish wedding book, the new Jewish baby book, Choosing a Jewish Life, Saying Kaddish, and um, so many other Jewish publications for which she has earned uh, a really cherished place in many people's hearts and libraries. Following next week, we're looking forward to welcoming Miriam Hartman, the principal violist of the Israel Philharmonic, author Nessa Rappaport, and Jody Bromberg, who is the executive director of 18 Doors, formerly known as interfaithfamily.com, who will join us at the end of December to talk about this season in multi-faith and multi-heritage family lives and, and in the Jewish community. A reminder, there is no Justice Beit Midrash meeting this Wednesday night. We will return next Wednesday night. I invite you all to, uh, to, to join us for deep and, uh, and, and compelling study around the most important issues of our time. Um, please save the date, December 6th, Sunday. We are going to be honored by um, welcoming Georgetown professor, uh, rabbi, scholar, activist, Julia Watts-Belzer, who will be leading a workshop for us on ecological grief and Jewish spiritual practice. That is our monthly climate event taking place on December 6th, proving to be an incredibly special opportunity. Please register and invite people to come along with you. December 18th, we'll be joining for our Friday night Shabbat service to celebrate Hanukkah. And on the 20th, having just returned from Izmir last night, on the 20th of December, the Armchair Pilgrim Supper Club takes off from Mumbai, together with Rav Chaim Ovadja, Dan, of course, and more special musical guests. If you wish, please stay online after we close with our with our closing prayer to have a chance just to say hello, to wish, wish each other a meaningful Thanksgiving. Um, if you have to jump off, we'll say Laila Tov and uh, hope to see you again very soon. This closing prayer will take the form of um, another poem by Joy, Joy Harjo called Eagle Poem. To pray, you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know except in moments steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. Like Eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky, in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing we are truly blessed because we were born and die soon within a true circle of motion, like eagle rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty, in beauty.
Laila Tov, everyone, please stay safe, stay healthy, and have a meaningful and mindful Thanksgiving. Laila Tov. <laughs>